0: Hi, everybody. This is Jerry Wan here, a host of The Asian Americans. And welcome to episode 100. And welcome to the one year anniversary of our show on my daughter Charlotte's second birthday. Uh, here we are celebrating a big milestone for our show with The Asian Americans. I started this show exactly a year ago as a gift to my daughter on her first birthday. To make sure that we would be able to share stories of so many different Asian-Americans. Really to leave for her and her generation to reflect and to dream and to be inspired. And let her know that our stories matter. And let her know that dad had some cool friends. And to let her know that she can grow up to be whatever she wanted. And So I really didn't know what this would mean for us from a production perspective. Um, COVID hit after we started this show, but uh, we got through a year. We uh, established 100 episodes, 100 interviews, um, and I'm really proud of what we've built. I'm proud of the lives that we've touched. I'm proud of the stories that we've shared, and uh, personally, I'm really proud that I actually did this. Uh, lasted a whole year and and built this, so Um, Allow me to share my story on this episode, episode 100 of The Asian Americans, and to make the show full circle, I've asked my friend Jonathan Wong, who was our guest on episode one, to come back and switch chairs and to interview me this time. And so please stick around to the end of the interview. We have some exciting updates for you um, as we near the uh, the transition period, as we enter, enter year two of the show. And just from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Whether this is your first episode that you're listening to, or it's the hundredth, uh, just nothing but gratitude from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for allowing me to live out my dream. Here now is my interview with me. Hey everybody, welcome to the Eurasian Americans. This is the episode that I was either waiting for or not waiting for for an entire year, but welcome to episode 100, where I will be the guest. And so interviewing myself would be a very awkward thing to do. So I've asked my friend, Jonathan Wong, who was our very first guest uh, exactly a year ago on this day on March 2nd, to switch chairs. And it's a very different interview because we're on Zoom and not in his office. But since I am the guest, I am going to now uh, hand over the hosting duties to Jonathan. Hi.
1: Hi, folks. Um, hi, everyone. Folks that I don't know, folks didn't hear episode one. My name is Jonathan. i glad to be here. Congratulations, Sherry, on reaching 100 episodes. About a, almost a year later, exactly, as to where when we're recording this. And a year has felt so long ago, but it's also very short. So um, a lot has changed then, but I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for letting me uh, be a part of this journey with you. It's been, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of reflecting the last
0: couple of weeks as we were approaching this and I don't know if it was a good or a bad sort of time because so much has happened in the last couple of weeks, last month in our community. Mm -hmm. And so it's been weird, to be honest with you. It will feel, it it feels weird, you know, we're, it's the Friday before, so it's the last Friday in February. And I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but just in context, like, you know, somebody in New York city was stabbed yesterday and thankfully he'll live, but like, it's a weird time to be. Celebrating or just you know talking about anything other than uh, doing what's right for the community, but um, objectively, I know that our show has made a difference in the way that people view themselves and the way that they view us as a community. So it's been a weird year. We'll probably yeah. never have a year like this, um, but you know, yeah. and, and thanks to COVID, we were able to pump out a bunch of stuff to get to hundred in fifty-two weeks, which is insane. But thanks to people like you who've shared your story, here we are.
1: And maybe as a personal antidote, I know there are a number of people who have reached out to me, and I think that I was able to then connect them with you. And I think you've been a part of their lives now, and I think you've been able to reach out to them and support them. And the work that you do, I think has just been important. And so I think there are, you know, it, it's hard to celebrate. It's hard to take those moments to really take take a step and step back and think about what we've been able to accomplish um, as a community, um, as individuals personally. and you no, know, sometimes we feel guilty about doing that, but I think it's also important for our own sakes and our personal lives that we do have those moments to reflect and you know, feel proud of what you've been able to do. <laughs> Thanks. It's um
0: yeah, it, it's weird. It's a weird mix of uh, pride, ego, and humility and imposter syndrome all rolled up into one, but I think that's the Asian
1: American experience right there, but you know.
0: <laughs> that's it. That's the whole show, guys. We're done. <laughs>
1: Um, well, as we keep talking back and forth, I know that you've asked me to interview you. Um, you know, I just, I think, I think you getting to be in this seat now and kind of a hundred episodes later, um, hearing from all the different folks that you've interviewed and all the experiences that you've heard of, I think folks really want to know more about you as the host, as, as a person who's been interviewing other folks. Um. So if you just want to let folks know, what is your origin story? You know, how how did you how did you get to be where you are now, um, here in the United States of America, um, hosting dear Asian Americans, um, you know, being a proud USC Trojan <laughs> alumni. You know, what 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 is that origin story for you?
0: Thanks. I, I I've been I've asked this I don't know 99 times. I guess more. We've had multiple guests and repeat guests. So I don't know how many times we've actually asked this question, but so I, I've thought about this for a year, and you know it's been an interesting journey for for us to have gotten here. Um, so I, I was born in Korea in 1983, uh, the younger of, of two brothers. Uh, my brother is most people think we're a year apart, but we're like 11 months and six days apart, which is a weird thing to um, think about. But uh, you know, we we grew up there until 1992, and uh, our family had decided um, you know, rather quickly, uh, that we would pack up and, and move to America. And uh the, the decision was sudden and, you know, still we don't actually I don't it, it's one of those things where I really haven't um asked about intently because perhaps I don't want to know, but the circumstances around our uh coming here or the reasons why, you know, it was still I don't know. Um I probably knew that I was gonna get asked this question and perhaps I should have asked my parents a little bit more in depth about it, but for four for reasons still uh, unclear to me you know we decided to move and and we decided to move to Fullerton California because that's where my uncle uh, one of my mom's older brothers lived and so you know it was an ex- interesting experience coming uh, from Korea and you know in Korea I, you know I, I think it was uh I did second grade there and because of the differences in uh, academic years I popped up into third grade here um, it was interesting because as as if people know anything about Fullerton, it's pretty damn Korean today. And it was pretty Korean 28 years ago, um, where, you know, I met friends in the class. I had a cousin in my class. Um, and so like I could, I wasn't mute, right. I could communicate and kids in my class spoke Korean and I was just, you know, that was okay. Um, you know, where I felt a little bit, my first memories of feeling otherized was, um, with the kids in my neighborhood, um, you know, in, in the cul-de-sac when we were let out to play and I had no idea what they were saying. And that was sort of like, okay, this is weird. Um, you know, the very f- first question I think that really made me feel crazy was, it was like the first week we were here, the kids as kids do, um,
2: is it, Hey, what's your name? And like, I not know how to answer it, right? Because the name structure in
0: Asian languages in English is also, you know, uh, flipped. I don't want to say yeah. one is backwards of the other, but, um, and so I think I said Jerry Wan in some like weird accent. And they're like, what? And I went to my dad and I was like, how do I say my name? Actually, you know what? I don't know. I don't know if I actually had the name Jerry at that time. Let me let me correct. I was just I was going to ask you, I was like, did you get to choose Jerry? Oh, no, no, no. I was named after the mouse. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) I was named after the mouse. Uh, No, my brother's name is not Tom, uh, but I was named after the mouse because they had eight years of observation (laughs) on their second son. And just like. Jerry. in, In the movie, which is ironic. I guess poetic because the new Tom and Jerry movie is coming out today. I know. I just got
1: a notification on my phone about that.
0: Yeah. From HBO max. Um, yeah. That's not a plug. Um, yeah. <laughs> although Ken, Ken jugs making money. So good for him. Um, you know, I was the kid that just couldn't stay still. I was always running around and, you know, couldn't sit still. And um, you know, what, what, what Asian parents value most is sort of that tenacity, right? Like long, like anything long, time-wise is something that is of value, at least in the Korean culture, right? Like long tenure of study, long tenure of work. And um, when you study, you study for long hours. I didn't have that. I was just, you know, I don't know how I would have been diagnosed had I been here or in a different circumstance, but I was just like all over the place. So they said, we're going to call you Jerry after the mouse. I said, that's fine by me. Uh, You you didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. (laughs) I'm, okay, I'm actually okay with the name Jerry yeah. because there's not so many Asian Jerrys in the universe. Although there was another Jerry one uh, in my high school. And so oh, wow. he was a year ahead. I know, like out of all places. And uh, yeah, so anyway. So yeah, we, we moved here, uh, spent five years here. You know, uh, my father is a physician and he was licensed in Korea. But when you are a foreign licensed physician coming into the United States, you have to relicense and retest all over again. And so we had spent the first few years where he was studying for those exams and um, working different jobs here and there, uh, teaching and and the like to um, get his uh, U.S. medical license. And so that was an arduous process and, and, uh, you know, not the easiest of times for our families. You know, even as an immigrant, he was determined to be a, a U.S. doctor. I think they had a lot of discussions and you know, conversations about, well, what do we do here? Because that process, um, it, it took him eight years. And so, um, you know, it's not an easy process. And yeah. so uh, that, that, and that's the reason why we ended up moving to New York after five years. Because he, his uh, residency program that he was selected into was at a, a hospital in Queens, New York. And so uh, we went from a very suburban, very protected, quiet, Korean heavy neighborhood to uh, Bayside, Queens, which demographically is also very diverse. And, you know, a lot of Koreans there, but, you know, New York City is a different beast. You know, so that's where uh, I grew up, per se, Uh, went to, you know, uh, Bronx Science for high school, which was in a different borough and far away from Bayside and Queens where we lived. My mom, out of all, uh, I don't know how she did it. I mean, she's, as, as with most Asian moms, they just find out stuff um, however way they can. And, and so uh, Bronx Science is a, a public high school, but it is a test-in school. And uh, it's been in the news a lot lately. But there's an exam that's administered to all New York City eighth graders one time. Um, and based on how you score, you can get into either Bronx Science, Diversion, Brooklyn Tech. And, and now it's, it's a longer list of schools. Um, but because I had not been present and because my brother had not been present in eighth grade, um, we thought we were ineligible and we would have to go to the, the zoned local school where we moved to, uh, which was not great. Somehow, some someway, um, my mom found out that they missed, administered a very uh, quiet second running of that test at the New York City Board Education office in the summer for kids who weren't around in New York City at the time. I, had no, I have still I have no idea how she found out. So we take the test. My, my brother and I uh, both test into Bronx Science. Um, we actually tested into Stuyvesant 2, which uh, technically is, is higher score requirement. Yeah. Um, yeah. But being a Southern California mom who used to drive us everywhere, she looked at the map and she said, I'm okay driving to the Bronx. I'm not okay driving into Manhattan every day. And so that's why I actually went to Bronx Science. Um, it's very <laughs> odd reasoning and, and logic of, of how that happened. But- um, you know, in, in New York City is where I grew up because I, I became, you know, I was a kid, right? It was 92 or 97, so I was, I was 13 and we spent three years there. Um, that's where I became, you know, you have no friends. You, you literally are dropped in and you have to make uh, all new friends, build a whole new social circle. And um, the things that you learn about just being a teenager in New York City where you have to take the subway and you have to interact with different types of people and have diversity in your life. Um, that's, I think, really opened my eyes, and you know, nothing wrong with where I grew up previously, but I don't think I would have had the my 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 eyes open as wide as mm. I had in New York City. Um, you know, uh, what, one of the more fundamental tenets or some experiences of my high school experience was that I was very involved at the time um, with the Christian Club on campus, and it was a chapter of a citywide group of clubs called Seekers and there were a lot of citywide events where we would uh have events and once a year twice a year we'd have a leadership conference and a large retreat where you'd go and for the first time you're sharing you know meals and uh you know stories and cabins with people that don't look like you at all and i don't think i would have done that if i stayed in fullerton right and so um you know people that uh, I, I still am in touch with today um you know, Reverend Wendy, who led the organization, like, I'm very grateful for that, because that was a fundamentally life-changing experience that lasted three years that I'm I'm still grateful for. And, you know, it's still friends there that I think are, uh, you know, you're, you're supposed to have an upward trajectory when you go to a school like Bronx Science, right? We're yeah. One, yeah. one of these schools that has an alumni association and You know, we still keep it on our LinkedIn and we still talk about it, right? Like, but I'm grateful for that. Not because of the academic rigor, which helped train us into whatever we went into doing, but uh, because of the environment. And that's where I really found the confidence to speak up and to be a leader. This is a story that I don't tell too often, but, um, and I don't know if you can track somebody's political career in high school, but like, I thought I was going to run for uh, student body president senior year. I wanted to. And I did everything freshman, sophomore, junior year to do it. But, um, I couldn't because I left high school after junior year. Uh, and the reason for that was, uh, again, for my father's job, he was done with his three year residency program, uh, the, the month that I would have finished high school. And so my parents said, Hey, we're going back to LA. And I said, why? <laughs> I want to stay. <laughs> I want I got, to graduate. I got, yeah. I got like another month. Come on. I got, I got, well, I mean, it was, I got a whole year. I want to be president. Oh, I want true. to do all this yeah. stuff. I want to graduate from Bronx Science. I want to, you know, have my Bronx Science teachers write my recommendations. Um, And again, because my mom's a freaking ninja, uh, she hired this uh, college consultant um, who, who I think, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, one of these Korean uh, counselors that, I don't know, uh, work with parents, insecure parents (laughs) as my mom was anyway. So she found out that USC had this program called the resident honors program where they took high school juniors and put them straight into, uh, college freshman year, uh, with or without a high school diploma, if they felt that they were academically ready. So, um, I was forced to apply. Uh, it was the very, I was forced to apply. And I remember very vividly because uh, the day before the applications were due and for old folks, this was when we actually had to use a old school typewriter to write out our applications. My dad said, did you fill out your college application yet? And I said, no, I'm not going. That's the first and the last time my dad ever hit me. And he said, Hmm. we're going. And he kicked me out of the house. It was February in New York City. I was wearing basketball shorts because I thought I wasn't going to get kicked out of the house. And it was a very, because what are you supposed to do when you're like 16 or 17 and and that happens, right? You know, how I wish my parents would have handled that now is, you know, we've made sacrifices for you. Can you make this sacrifice for me? I don't know if I would have understood it, but as as a 37-year-old, perhaps that's the way I would have liked to have that story play out. Right, but in in any circumstance, I I got into USC early. I left high school after junior year. Was not able to run for school president because everybody knew that I was leaving. And so you know, at the ripe old age of seventeen, I I started USC and um sort sort of the rest of the history. Yeah, and obviously that's where uh not. Uh, At the same time, but that's how you and I ended up becoming friends through the organizations that we met. So, (laughs) yeah. Anyway, that's how like you know that's how the one family came here. You know, we're we're all generally back in Southern California. Um, My my folks moved back here. He opened up you know uh, practice out here. Um, My my brother came back with us. He went to UCLA. I went to USC. Um, You know, he's out in Pennsylvania now with his wife and family. But um, anyway, that's how the one
1: family moved here. This probably leads into the next section, but. I think part of, part of what you've talked about, I think is, you know, unique to your own story, but I think others can relate to aspects of whether being high school, whether immigrating here at a young age, um, you know, different parts of your story. And I think that's, that's part of the joy, part of the magic, I think what you're trying to do. Um, and I. I and just listen to your story and how, how you processed it and how you still continue to think about it, I think is important, not only for yourself, but for others, too, just hearing it on this. Maybe something I would want would want you to talk more about is beyond kind of that early childhood experience, how much of your Korean identity, Korean-American identity, played a role in high school um, as you started attending USC at a younger age? Yeah. Um, what, is, what, is that, what does that look like for you?
0: Yeah, I, you know, that's a really awesome question. And I you know, want to mention, I think in given today's political, social climate in our community, we've all sort of decided to identify as Asian American. And I think for many of us, myself included, I didn't like that term for a long time because it erased my career in this. And so I proudly identified as a Korean American. I still do. I know I started a show called Asian Americans, but like, you know, it's uh, a much, much interesting and deeper conversation on how you do both. So, you know, on, on the Korean identity front, you know, w- when you move here at eight and, you know, most of the, uh, the Korean school programming at church stuff revolves around kids who are born here, you're, you're sort of exempt from all Korean language stuff because- you're fluent or fluent-ish for an eighth grader or an eight-year-old. And in in New York, um, even though my high school was very diverse, most of my close friends were Korean. Um, Even though the clubs that I belonged to were predominantly, you know, multicultural, we just generally relegated to the Korean crew. And the churches that I went to and, you know, the social stuff that I did was Korean as well. Um, You know, I had a very interesting and very unique experience in high school that I think really cemented my my cultural identity in that um, I was uh, very fortunate to have participated in a, a program called Project Bridge uh, in my junior year of high school. And it was sponsored by the Career Society, where they selected uh, a, ran- not a, random, a group of high school students who applied from New York City, a group of high school uh, students who applied from the DC area, and then worked with a nonprofit out here in LA. So there was about 20 of us. And we went through an entire year-long leadership development program uh, remotely, locally in New York, and then That The culmination of that program was a two-week trip to Korea. And it was actually not supposed to be for kids like me, to be honest with you, because it was supposed to be an introduction of Korea and the Korean culture to, quote-unquote, American kids. Um, I don't think they knew that I was born in Korea and that I had family there and that, um, you know, I, I was very fluent.
1: It would have been a homecoming for you to take that trip. Yeah, but I didn't,
0: I was like, oh shit, I get to go to Korea. That's cool. Don't tell them I was born there. Um, (laughs) But anyway, you know, so it was a very cool group. Like I, you know, I'm I'm still friends with the people that I went to this trip with, right? Um, And that was awesome because I left when I was eight, right? You don't know anything about what do you do? What do you learn about Korea? You don't. And so to, to be treated as a guest in my own country, sort of say, to be taken to all the historical sites, you know, to visit the DMZ, to visit fam, you know, all this stuff. That was dope. And the coolest part, Jonathan, was that there was a night that was supposed to be homestay. So all the American kids would match up with a local uh, you know, Korean high school student and, and there was a homestay night. For me, I went to my family's house, right? Um, but the school that they matched the homestay students with was the high school I would have gone to had I never left Korea. Wow. That was crazy. And we were trying to figure out, like, if I actually knew those kids and if they actually remembered me, right? And so, like, that was, and I actually haven't thought about this experience just until you, you asked me, but, like, that was so cool because it was a weird full circle, like, this is how my life would have been had I never left. Yeah. Likely given where I grew up and given the tenacity and, and the energy of my mom, I'm pretty sure I would have, that would have been shipped off to America at some point <laughs> For, maybe would have ended up at USC anyway, as a, as an international student. But, um, that was critically important to my development because that was just before college too. And so there was this, you know, desire to learn more and, and an immense sense of pride, you know. Uh, I had to get permission from my school to leave for two weeks and, you know, catch up academically or, or whatever that meant. And so, you know, that was so fun and that was really life changing. So I'm still very grateful to the Korea Society. And, and another crazy full circle story with that, um, insanely, is we didn't pay for any of this. And so mm-hmm. we knew that somebody paid for it. Two years ago, I met the gentleman who funded the whole thing. And it was just insane. It, it was a very successful older Korean gentleman. And he said, I want to use my money to help bridge the culture. So here, here's the endowment. Like, take kids to Korea every year. Wow. And I, I was at some dinner through some leadership development thing. And I was like, holy crap. Like, this is the guy. And, like, you know, I, I went up to him and I thanked him. And, like, you know, we both got a little bit emotional. But, like, it's it's, it's so funny how life works. I mean, I don't I don't believe in... Yeah you know, chance. I don't believe in serendipity and it's just, it's weird. Yeah.
1: I think just something to note is just how funny that there's these programs and, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty normalized. I think within the Asian American community, either, you know, first gen, second gen Asian Americans or beyond to have these opportunities to go back to your home country or motherland, however you want to state it. Um, the country that, you know, your parents or books above them immigrated from. Um, Taiwanese kids have what we call love boat, which oh, yeah. I never participated in. Um, Abigail <laughs> you know, wrote a whole damn same, book about it. I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, don't, we don't talk about that. I have friends who did it. It's awkward. Um, but it's, it's that sense of how do we reconnect with that part? And I think it comes at a pretty similar moment of our development as youth into young adults um, that in hopes, I think we, we find that connection back to more than just being, I think Asian American or American, or for my case, Taiwanese American, for your case, Korean American. I think there's this kind of larger piece of identity that that's part of that as well, but how cool that you were able to do that and connect it back. Yeah. And, was so grateful.
0: Yeah, and then, I mean, this is like the, the next part is sort of like how the, the the KSA legend started at USC, but and so to give people context, like the Asian financial crisis, or as Korean people call it, the IMF crisis, the International Monetary Fund crisis, happened in the late '90s. Um, mm-hmm. All the Korean students, most of them, uh, filed out because uh, back then the economy of the Korean American economy and the student population was so tied to the Korean economy, so that when that crashed, people you know, pull their kids out of college. Um, That's the reason why when I stepped foot on campus in 2000, there was no uh, KSA. There was no Korean American Student Association. Back then we just called it the Korean Student Association. And so uh, a friend of mine, an older friend of mine, uh, my dad's best friend's son, who was my TA in one of my classes, I happened to run into him when I was done taking my, very last final in my first semester. And I was walking hmm. by the fountain right in front of your office. And, you know, I was like, hey, how's it going? What are you doing for break? Yada, yada, yada. And he goes, hey, by the way, what are you doing tomorrow? Said, Nothing. We're going to start a Korean club. Do you want to join? <laughs> and saying yes, that moment uh, to Ricky, like changed my life. Because wow. the next day, yeah, the next day I was in... Uh, you know, Jayon's apartment on Menlo, uh, meeting some new people. They were all older than me. Um, mind you, I was still like even not of legal age at this time. Cause I was a younger freshman, you know, uh, being on the first staff of what was what we know it to be KSA now, but, um, you know, it, it didn't exist then. And yeah. so that was also very fundamental to everything that I stand for today. I, you know we we like to joke that it was a place that i learned to smoke and drink and and learn all the bad habits as as my mom uh you know blames it was culture, uh, the culture old, that's part of culture yeah it's culture <laughs> i mean sucks for the kids now but these were the good old days where uh Koreatown didn't card or id i'm sure we looked young as hell but you know we didn't have a problem going to places to drink and party but that also led to me developing relationships with people who are still my friends today Who are community leaders? Who are entrepreneurs? Who are people um, who we look to, and and people who look to me to to build these bonds, right? So I I think when we think about, you know, this legacy that um, I'm I'm continuing to build on, like who, who is Jerry and why is he starting this Asian American media movement? The people that I called in the very beginning to say, "Hey, I'm starting a podcast. You want to be my guest?" Like you included, we're all extensions of the people that I collected and built relationships with since that period of my life. Yeah. And so, you know, uh I mean this is a sidebar, but if you're in college, um don't be too cool. Uh join the clubs. Participate in, in all the stuff. There you we had a lot of cool kids that didn't want to join, right? Um we also had a lot of uh more conservative kids who thought that all we did was, you know, socialize and then, you know, do bad stuff so they didn't, you know, hang out with us. But you yeah. know, Paul Kim, PKF Collaboration. I've known him since freshman year in college. Right, he was one of our very early guests in the, in the show, and and so th- those relationships matter. And you know, people always ask, like, how do you know so many people? And my joke answer is, I, I've been in drinking in Koreatown for twenty years, and it'd be weird if I didn't know everybody. <laughs> it's a very very small circle. But yeah, and and that really got me, you know. Uh, I don't know. We, we, did, we did a lot of community stuff. We we did a lot of uh, you know good stuff on campus. We built relationships, um, and you know the leadership things that I was able to build there. You know it was it was just just phenomenal. You know a lot of some of those guys are, are still good friends to this day. We still have a cacao talk chat of all the presidents from. Uh, I was number two uh, from number one all the way down to twenty still that we talk you know regularly and we try to help each other out. But, you know, when I look back at my USC experience, uh, even still to this day, like KSA is still, you know, a big, if not the biggest part of, of, uh, what I remember and and why I'm so grateful for that experience. Yeah. I mean, that's the legacy
1: you leave. I think at our, on our campus as well is that CASA is, you know, while they might've changed their name is still a big part of many, many students' lives. Um, whether singularly or just a part of their support networks, I think it's important yeah. socially um, developmentally, just having that support of fellow students who just get you. Um, yeah. And, and, and truly, it's evolved. Yeah.
2: You
0: know, yeah. I'm so proud of them, right? Like, you know, we, we were the old guys that intervened and like, wanted them to do it the old school way. And, you know, culture changes, what they want to do for fun changes.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, you know. We can't keep up anymore, but yeah. <laughs> we can't. Uh, we definitely can't. But it's, it's been, uh, it's also, you know, that was really one of the, the you know, the, the more formal ways that I, I began mentoring students, right? Because we just followed the lineage. And so, you know, um, it was just a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really grateful for yeah. them and I'm really proud of what the organization
1: has become. Definitely. So kind of looking back a little bit more, you talked a little bit about your childhood. What other, what other influences? Um, or desires that you have as a, as a as a kid here in the United States, or even back in Korea.
0: I don't know. Um, when when you're the uh, when you're the son of a doctor, you're sort of assumed to want to also become a doctor. Very true. Yeah. I cut that out really early, relatively early in my life, and I remember I had a big outburst in junior high school where I told my mom, stop telling me to become a doctor. I don't want to become a doctor. Leave
2: me alone. And they did, they didn't really pressure me about, you know, going to medical school. Right. And so, um, I I don't know what the earlier influences were. Right. Like, cause
0: from a professional standpoint, rather, um, I, I think in my life, I had my father who was, uh, training to be a doctor again right so he was studying for these strenuous exams almost full time um everybody else in my life or my friend's parents or my parents friends and they were generally entrepreneurs and not the entrepreneurs that we think about today but small business owners who were you know just working their faces off to provide for their kids yeah you don't really have good role models right professional role models um i it's weird um I I really can't think of that and and that's I mean part of the reason why we started the show because I didn't have that 20 years ago and apparently kids kids don't have a lot of that today and I got two little kids of my own I don't want them to have the same you know uh saying hey I didn't know what would be possible for me and so you know I didn't know what I wanted to do all the way like even through college it was weird I, I really didn't know I had some great influences in college. Um, my marketing professor, who then turned dean and is now retired, uh, Jim Ellis, played a critical role in, in, in my choosing sales and marketing as my first career. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was also very uh, blessed to have been taught by the late Warren Bennis, who was a leadership icon. And um, I remember asking Dr. Bennis, because uh, I always knew um, I, I should do something good and help people. And so I I asked him one day in office hours, I said, I'm I'm really stuck. Like, do I go try to make a ton of money as everybody else is telling me to do? Or do I go work for a nonprofit and be poor, but, you know, feel good making change? Um, And I say, I don't want to be offensive with the term poor. Like, I don't think I would have ever been like poor from from a general description. But when you're coming out of USC, it's relatively not as high income earning. (laughs) Right. And at the time, he said, go make all the money and use that money to do good in the world. I don't know if I believe that anymore now. I think the fact that I saw it and he treated it as a binary question, a mutually mm-hmm. exclusive answer. It's like, okay, I really trust this guy and he's a great mentor and, and my teacher, really. And so, you know, um, that's sort of the way I you know, attempted to choose. Um, now, I, I think it's, it's a little bit more holistic. You can do both. And maybe it's one of the same, or maybe it's both at the same time, um, you know, but we, we live in a more connected and more, um,
2: uh,
0: I don't know, it's a different world that we live in. Um, but you know, th- those two figures, I really think back uh, as, as the people who really gave me the confidence to, to do what I wanted to do, um, and to be who I wanted to be. Um, I'm still great friends with people. Um, there was a group of us, who took every class that Jim Ellis taught, regardless of the title, because <laughs> we just wanted to, you know, spend as much time with him as possible. Um, they all happened to be marketing classes. Um, also great friends with people that I took that leadership class with. Um, and, and so it, it's been, you know. And, and so I, I was still searching. And so, you know, I, I ended up spending the first 10 years outside of uh, after graduation in, in sales and marketing. Um, and it's because Jim said, you need to be good at people. If you want to be a leader, yeah. you need to be good at people. The best way to be good at people is to sell them stuff. I said, okay. So, you know, I, I did that for 10 years. I, I did. I sold real estate for new home developers. I sold mortgages. I sold insurance. You know, uh, it was when I was selling insurance in 2013 that I met my wife. Um, actually, just down the street from campus at the AAA building. <laughs> um <laughs> And so, you know, my, my life is just full of these weird, I don't even want to say weird, but just, you know, concentric full circles that just continue yeah. to topple on top of one another. And again, this is where I, I want to be. I don't want to be that so stereotypically Asian, deflective of everything and own the things that I've done to work towards those serendipitous moments. But also not not to, my work isn't done, um, but yeah, it, it's just insane the things that I've gotten to do in my life, and we won't get to all of them today. But just so so blessed and so lucky. Um, but you know, meeting Kyungah was you know uh, the the biggest pivotal moment in my life because it was then that I you know was challenged to think about going to graduate school. Uh,
2: you know, so we met in thirteen. I don't know if people want to hear this story, but <laughs> like, she, she she
0: called to get AAA membership because she had just moved down from Oregon. Um, I Crazy, but you know, somebody, actually, I'll tell this story and I, and I won't tell some other stories because this is fun. <laughs> so in, in where we worked, like, you can it have was,
1: You can have a part two. I don't two want to have to a part two. Tell all the um, other stories.
0: Maybe. <laughs> but this one's, this one, this one's life changing. So, um, uh, we had an up system as, as many sales floors do where, you, you know, you're on call duty, you're on up duty, um, just to make the system a little bit more fair this particular day at this time, I was not on either. And so this was my time to do paperwork or to, um, you know, call out and, and, and try to drum up business. The phone rang and when you're not up, you're not supposed to pick up the phone. So my service manager, Karen picks up the phone and she happened to be sitting right across from me. And she said, hey, we made eye contact. And she said, hey, do you want to take this call? And she said, it's a membership transfer. And membership transfers are actually non-revenue generating activities for insurance salespeople at AAA because it's just taking an Oregon membership and making it into a California membership. But she said, you never know. Maybe they need insurance because they moved here, right? I said, fine, transfer the call. And the next thing was like the, the biggest important Decision I've ever made in my life in hindsight. So she sends me the the customer profile on my screen. The phone's ringing. She's on hold, and it says you know Kyung Wa Hong, and I was like, do I say hello or do I say Yobo's And because <laughs> in where we were, we served us a lot of the Korean community from Koreatown, and so right, so there was a good chance that she might have been a little bit older, and you know she Korean was a preferred language, Korean maybe yeah, right. Yeah. And I was like. It's like, shoot, what do I do? It's like, you know what? I'm just gonna, she's from Oregon. I'm just going to go with hello. And, <laughs> and, the, and the rest is history. Um, we, we had her on the phone. Um, I said, hey, you know, I'm happy to do your membership, but what about insurance? Um, and she said, I wasn't thinking about insurance. I said, good, I can help you with that. And, and we were talking on the phone for a while. And um, while I could have done everything for her on the phone, I lied. And I said, we need to do some paperwork in person because I wanted to see what she looked like. And so I, I asked her to come into the office the next day. I felt terrible because I was busy and I made her wait for 30 minutes. And, you know, we, we hit it off. Uh, we went on our uh, first, I guess, friend dinner date two days later. A year after that, we were engaged. And a uh, year after that, we were married and are off to, uh, to Michigan. Yeah. Years later, she said, if you said, I probably would have been freaked out and not been so friendly. <laughs> and so that... <laughs> That was the big life. Change. Out of all the decisions I've made in my life, that split second decision to say hello
1: ended up being life-changing. To changed. say hello, yeah, to say hello and try to upsell her. You know, those are the two things that.
0: <laughs> hey, I, I did sell her insurance. We made a little bit of commission, which paid for the first date. So it all it all there worked you. out. And now you
1: have insurance jointly, so it's it all works out. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's an awesome story. I love that one. So. I mean, you've kind of touched about it, but how, how do you feel like you got to where you are now post-college? So you talked about kind of your trajectory from yeah. attending USC business school, marketing uh, sales, and um, you went to university of Michigan, got your MBA there. Um, what's that post-college journey? How has that been for you?
2: How, how yeah, did you find you yourself
1: here now?
0: I was always looking for a place where I could be me. I just didn't, wasn't able to verbalize that. And so if you look at the pretty version of my resume, it's pretty short. If you look at the long version of my resume, I've had way too many jobs for a 37-year-old. And the jumping around had a lot to do with the real estate market. It had a lot to do with my industry, but it also had a lot to do with the fact that I just Did not feel that I could be authentically me working with people that supported me and the things that I cared about. And so to get specific, it was, and especially in the world of sales, it's, I don't really care what you look like. The only color that I see is green, is what a lot of people say. And so when you want to talk about diversity, when you want to talk about supporting community initiatives, when you want to talk about, you know, supporting certain things, they say, well, how does that, what does that mean for my business? And I understand that business is business, but when you care about the community, when you want to, you know, support financially or with your time, certain things, and your organization does not support you either directly or even indirectly by blessing your time off, or just saying, yeah, we should do that, you continue to look for places that allow you to be you. And so you know, that plus you want to be at a place where, you know, people are ethical and people are are good and and want to bring you up. Um, and so, you know, the first 10 years was all of that, just jumping around, bouncing from place to place, you know, leaving, getting fired, you know, inconsistent income because you're a salesperson. So you might have great times and you have, you know, really crappy times. And so sort of going to grad school, um, And going to business school, or deciding to rather, was sort of, okay, jumping around in the sales world hasn't worked. Maybe if I get a better degree and a better job and a better steady paycheck, like that's where Mm -hmm. I feel at ease or at home. And so that was actually the goal of business school. It was very Mm -hmm. deliberately, I want to become a consultant. Nobody's going to hire a 31-year-old Jerry with no like linear experience. But they might hire a 32-year-old, 33-year-old Jerry coming out of business school. And so let's do that. And so that was the uh, entire goal of business school was to career switch and to get a more traditional job, which I decided that was going to be consulting. Still, I think, you know, uh, we'll, we'll skip over the business school experience for now. But when I went to work for the consulting firm, I still wasn't allowed to be me. You still had to keep your mouth shut. You ha- I still got, you know, you know, things like, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's okay to do ERG stuff, but, you know, make sure that you take care of the client stuff first, which right. I, I get it. right? But when you realize that all those things are lip service just to check a box or just to, you know, um, that there's no real authenticity behind the organization's intent for people to show up authentically and to feel safe and to thrive. Um, you continue to look for different places. And, and so, you know, the, the reason why I left consulting, um, in addition to many other things, was, was this particular moment where, you know, I, I started this show on my daughter's birthday. This The other story has to do with my son's birthday, where his second birthday was, was on a Monday. I was traveling to Detroit for work at the time, and um, I had made a commitment to not work on my kids' birthdays. And that's something that's important to, to my family. But uh, we were nearing the end of the project. There was a lot of things to do. And, and so I said, you know, maybe I'll just ask my manager to work from home on Monday. And since we're traveling east from L.A., that's, all, that's, something, that's something that we were allowed to do from time to time. This particular time, she said, actually, you know, we have a lot of things that we want to do. Um, and so I actually need you here at 9 a.m. on Monday. And, you know. I hear it's just, you know, you said it's your son's birthday. I understand, but there's a lot of things that we need to do. And, you know, I showed my cards too early so I couldn't call in sick or do anything else like that, right? So jumped on the red eye, was tired as hell, feeling terrible that I was going to miss my son's second birthday. Get to Detroit, 5 a.m. It's a 9 a.m. meeting. I didn't want to take a nap and offer sleep, so I just stayed up. Um, I get to the room where I'm supposed to have my 9 a.m. meeting with her. And then around like eight something, she goes, oh, yeah, um, I wasn't feeling well. So I didn't jump on the plane this morning and I'll see you tomorrow.
2: Mm. I was pissed. Yeah, I was pissed. Because this, you know, it's like um, this
0: is a comical reference, but, you know, in Ace Ace Ventura. When there's a moment, he goes, (laughs) this information could have been important to me yesterday. like. Literally, I was right. like, "If right. you decided last night that you weren't feeling well, you could have said, "Hey, cancel your flight. Come the next day. We're not going to do anything anyway." Right. And so that entire Monday, I was sitting in a conference room with just my analyst. I wasn't doing anything. I was pissed. Nobody else was going to come into the office that day and, you know, um, ended up having, you know, dinner alone. By myself in Detroit, like it was just an awful experience. And the worst part of it was that she never acknowledged it and she never apologized. Right. Because she didn't give a shit. Right. Right. And when you work for companies who win all these diversity awards, but won't give a shit about you missing your son's birthday when you made it clear that was important to you. You can't at at some point, you can't say those are bad apples in an organization. At at some point, you have to wonder if that's a place where you're going to be able to thrive at all. Yeah, and so you know, yeah. that was the final straw. A couple of months later I left. Went went to uh, WeWork um and you know, people have heard a lot of things about WeWork and its internal culture and um, you know, similar story. I just didn't care, right? And then there were a couple instances where I feel like I was being singled out or targeted because of who I was. And so um there was there was another brief stint after that, but ultimately um in in the fall of 2019 I was looking for things to do next. And of course, you know, money is important. Generating income for your family is very important, especially when you went to graduate school and uh, you have those obligations. I struggled. I I struggled with this idea of, okay, so let's say I get another job. I, I was looking for two things. Something that I could make a ton of money so that I could pursue the side passions that I wanted to do or something that would allow me to work exactly 40 hours and not a minute more so that I could pursue my passions with my time. Mm
2: -hmm. Like
0: I interviewed for stuff on campus because I figured, hey, it's a 40-hour gig. The money's going to be okay. And, you know, like, like that was a part of the thought process too. Or I interviewed for very insane hour sales jobs where I figured I would, you know, suck it up for a year or two, make a lot of money and do something else. Yeah. But it was always with the assumption that I wasn't going to be in it for the long run, because I don't think I was ever, ever going to find a place where I felt authentically me. I was justifying stuff, right? I was always looking. I was always looking to tweak the variables of a formula that couldn't be solved for more money, different industry, different job title, you know, different city, like this prestige. I don't know. So, you know, I felt like I had no choice but to go down this path where I started telling stories that I felt passionate about and then to build a business around it because as challenging as being on this journey has been, I don't have a boss. I don't have anybody that says you can't post that. I don't have anybody that says you can't spend your time attending that you know, charity function or talking to that person. In fact, I get to spend all my time elevating all those people I care about and giving them a voice and a platform to
2: share about their work. And so, for me, I almost feel like I had no choice. And Mm.
0: it comes that that statement comes with with a bucket of privilege. I get it. It comes with a a lifetime of gratitude that I'll never be able to pay back to my wife, who's uh, you know suffered the brunt of this decision to. Um, you know, carry us financially and emotionally while I've, you know, been down this path. But I, I don't know, you know, people will look at me from the outside and go, you can't keep a job. Why don't you just keep your head down? You know, I, I can't. And that's a very privileged thing to say. That's a very right. offensive thing to say. Right. Um, especially if you talk to some older Asian Americans and say, you know what we had to go through and you can't keep your pretty professional job? But I genuinely feel like I've made more impact in the last year doing this by myself than I could ever from the inside of an organization. And when you talk to other Asian American executives or any, you know, uh, BIPOC executives, they'll tell you the same thing. There's a whole lot of stuff that they've desensitized themselves from and they won't speak up because they can't they don't want to risk their where they are
1: right it becomes they they have to protect themselves at some point
0: Well, and and, and they've been conditioned to protect the logo that yeah. lives on their paycheck and every organization i think is responsible in some way of upholding the systems and the values and the and the infrastructure that makes life harder for people like us makes it harder for people like our friends and so when you can't speak out against that because you know, you are expected to be an extension of the PR department at all times, especially on platforms like LinkedIn, where um, when you say something that's questionable, you get a ping and saying, hey, that thing you said or that thing you commented, you know, would you mind taking that down? It doesn't align to our values. Well, what's more important, your set of personal values that you're you know, is, is based on your legacy and your and your history of your ancestors or uh some companies desire to make more money and that statement that you made may be proba- problematic to that.
2: Mm,
0: yeah. And so yeah, it's 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 been a hell of a you know, hasn't been easy. And I, I don't want people, you know, I'm not I don't want a pity party. I, I don't want like, oh you have done a great job. Like it's not easy.
2: Starting an Asian American media company from zero, like, there's no playbook for this.
0: We, you know, there, there's no playbook for how to start a podcasting company on, on stuff you care about, but isn't probably profitable. Like, I might have to write the playbook on that because
1: it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I wrote something down as you were talking and you mentioned early on, and I think it's something that, I, as, as even we're talking today, that um, I think it's been probably in the back of your mind. It's, you, you were, you've been looking for places that allow you to be you. And I think that's true as you were talking about KSA at USC, your time, um, even when you first immigrated here, um, either to Fullerton and then your time in New York, finding those places that allow you to be you. And I think authentically you, I think that's something that it sounds like you're still searching for that, but you, you're building something that allows that for you personally, and then potentially for others as well, and I think that's important
2: Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean this this
0: whole thing, I, I know that people have, have said nice things and all, all that, and I'm grateful for that. I'm not deflecting any of it, but this was very selfish for me. Like I needed to be a place that I could be okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I created these interviews for my kids, for my daughter. So that she could listen to this stuff at a later point and get inspired that her aunts and uncles did all this crazy stuff, that you know, Appa's friends did all this crazy stuff, and that this was what we went through together in 2020.
2: So I, I know other people have benefited from all this, but you know, this is you know, been
0: been a very, very selfish endeavor to create something that I wish I had in college. And that I wish I could leave for my kids, that I am now leaving for my kids, and you know, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, we had three guests on this show that now have their own show um and, and Patrick KJ and Nathan starting the Tanchi show, and we have a parenting show that um, we, we've spun off from here and you know so we're, we're we're doing what we can to create the things that we wish we had and to create the things that are leaving that are worth leaving behind because we don't, I don't think we do a very good job of that. I, th- I think so many of us, and again, I understand where it comes from given the very complex and sometimes very um, challenging histories that our parents come from, especially Korea, Vietnam, and other places that experienced war um, in our parents' lifetime, in our grandparents' lifetime. But studying hard as, you can, as much as you can, getting the right logos and getting the right paychecks and living in the right zip code, sometimes isn't the answer to all. And actually, in most cases, I don't think it ever is. And I'm sorry if you don't agree with me on this, but I think the people who do that are still struggling with it. And they're masking it many of the times with the things that I talked about. Because look at what's going on in the country today. Nobody asks you if you went to Harvard before they stab you. Nobody asks you what company you founded. Nobody asks you what car you drive, where you vacationed. They're attacking people because this is the way we look. It has nothing to do with wh- who we are, what we've done. And so, if if that's purely based on where we come from, what we look like, we have to provide spaces for people who fundamentally can connect and and connect at the most basic, authentic human level of our shared experiences. And and that's what I've been very lucky to do the last year. Yeah, I mean, how we, I mean, just the variety of people that we've been able to speak to is is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even remember all of them, to be honest with you. There's been so many.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think that that was my second-to-last question for you, is that you know positioning. Whether you're listening to this as it comes out or years down the line, you know we're in 2021, we are following. Still in the pandemic, <laughs> we're, we're on Zoom. Still in the pandemic, we are following a year where racial justice and racial equity have been in the spotlight more so than ever and not to say they haven't been in the past but a lot of things happening over the summer but end of february 2021 you mentioned early on you know we're we're at this time where i think we are facing a lot of violence in the asian asian american communities and we aren't sure where we end up i think um, I think we're we're looking for support. We're looking for solidarity. We're looking for others to guide us, assist us, try to figure this out within the community and outside of the community. Um, and I think we're we're seeing the real real implications of um, where we're at right now in in terms of kind of how the United States has has really been set up as as a society historically to both support and not support the Asian American community at large. Um, but what I really, I think, want to ask you is just, what is, what is that legacy for you? What is, what is it that you're looking towards? I know you talked about your kids. Yeah. I know you talked about the community, but what is, what is it for you?
0: I want people to be proud of who they are.
2: I think we have done and continue to do I'll rephrase that we can do a much
0: better job telling our stories and not just the stories like these, but the stories of our ancestors, the, um, stories that, you know, uh, heroes like former guest, Ren- uh, Renee Tajima Pena, who have made her
2: life's work, telling our stories, being a documentarian and a professor. We didn't learn, um, Asian American history. And so when I, when I think about
0: that and when I think about the fact that so many of us are so young, relatively speaking, in our immigrant journeys where I don't think my parents identify as, actually, no, I know for a fact my parents don't identify as Asian American. What is that? No. No. They may not even identify as Korean American. As far as they're concerned, they are Koreans in America. And so they otherwise mm-hmm. themselves. They don't care politically. They don't care socially to get active and to care. Because as long as it doesn't impact their lives directly, it's everybody else's problem. And so how do we, in the middle generation, knowing what our parents feel and what they've been through, but also with the charge of fostering the next generation, whether you're a parent or somebody like you, Jonathan, who mentors and and guides students, like what is our charge to make sure that we provide what is necessary for people to continue to be extremely proud in a healthy way of their culture, of their food, their of their language, but also this unified feeling of what in the hell does it mean to be Asian American and why should we identify as such? And it's unfortunately that all these nasty events in the world have led us to this, but if we can't get a house in order, we can't expect other people to help us. We cannot expect other people allies or otherwise to get behind us and to stand with us if we can't get on the same page ourselves on how we want to move forward. And I'm not advocating for everybody to fall under some sort of cult leader or some sort of doctrine that everybody fall in. But we have to understand that we have a very uh, ugly and unfair history in this world, that we are here for a variety of reasons. Why are refugees here? Go study that part of American history. Why are adoptees here? Let's go study that part of American history. Why are Koreans here? Go study that part of American history. Understand what the country's role is in our very existence here and then
2: look at how we're treated. That should fire you up. That should get you mad. But that should get you excited that we have
0: a place in this world, that we have a place in this country, that we have a voice and that we have the audacity to want to be treated as such. And, and that's what I hope my legacy is, that we, we continue to share these stories because nobody wakes up with their identity awakening day one and says, I'm gonna do all these things. It's a journey. Yeah. And I think that my contribution to the pie and to the movement is in the earlier chapters of that journey to get people to be proud of their history to get people to share their stories of where they come from, where they are where they want to go. I think you you shared with me as, as, you know, it's been about a year. Nobody's ever asked you to tell your story. I get that from so many of our people, but what if we all did? What if we all wrote more op-eds? What if we all wrote more books, started podcasts, radio shows, whatever. What if we just put an infinite number of Asian American stories out there where it just became so normal to hear our stuff? And as much as I love celebrating movies like Minari that are coming out, that is out. Why do we have to celebrate the ones because there's so few of them? Why do we have to debate about if shows like Bling Empire and House of Ho are good for the community? What if there (laughs) were so many that we're okay with shows like that? Right? Because overall, we're still represented. Because we're not going back. I'm a foreigner in Korea. you would be a foreigner in Taiwan. We're not going back. This is home. Yeah. Let's figure yeah. out how we're going to make it a better home for our kids. That's simple. So make your money. Go get those degrees. But don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you come from. And lastly, don't forget what your kids are going to have to deal with because they can't change the way they look. Yeah. And and that's it. You know, for for me, like, I I don't know where this business is going to go. Um, it's allowed me to, uh, have different things that I could do, like, you know, business coaching and uh, public speaking. Um, it, it's been such a joy, but you know what the topic that I get to speak to when I go to these large corporations whose names people would recognize my Asian American journey,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, how insane that is. <laughs> That's crazy to me that I grew up thinking that for me to have a stage at some of these companies and in these large organizations would be to hide my identity and to be a functional expert on leadership on something but i'm getting invited to speak to share this story and to inspire the people in the room that it's okay to talk about yourself cuz what's more important than your sense of identity and your sense of safety and your sense of authenticity like that to me is like, if I can inspire just one more person to do that.
2: And again, it's not a statement of ego. It's a statement of fact. People have started podcasts because of me. I'll take it. They tell me directly. I'm That's, that's the legacy,
0: right? Like, I don't need to be the Tyler Perry of our community. I think the money would be nice. But I want to inspire other people to be... You know,
2: to to start all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, that that's that, You know, that's where I think I, I'd like my legacy to go.
1: Love it, yeah. So Jerry, as never having been to podcastos before, how do we, how do we end this thing?
2: Well, <laughs> how do you uh, end
1: how do we how when, do, we, how do end, I
0: mean, end we, we we all? I, I'm going to serve myself the letter, but you know, we we end yes. with the Dearest Americans letter. That's the name of the show, and. I, I got to shout out uh, my friend, Noel, who runs a blog in, a, in an organization called Dear Black Woman, uh, who was actually, when I was looking at her newsletter, that was a light bulb moment to name this show.
2: Hmm. And
0: so I, I want to shout Noel out. Uh, we, were at school, we were friends in business school. I don't know if I ever publicly acknowledged her, but I want to tell her thank you. Jason Liu, who is a student at USC and somebody you know well, he created our logo. I want to thank Jason and, and to Allison, our first editor, and Jay, our second editor.
2: This has been a, a team effort and it's been an insane journey. And so I'll share an update about the show and I'll, I'll finish us out with the letter. And so
0: this is the last show that I'm going to formally host for the next year. Uh, we're, we want to make this show about the community. And so we are going to be asking 12 of my friends to host uh, a month at a time for the next year. And so I'm um, happy to share that next month in celebration of uh, Women's history month. Uh, Tiffany Huang is going to be hosting the show and bringing us, bringing us some friends of hers that she, believes represents the Asian American voice. And in April, we'll hear from somebody else and in May, we'll hear from somebody else. And, and that's the way that I would love to leave the next chapter of uh, the Dear Asian American story because it's not it was never about me. I've, I've had the great honor of starting this journey. Um, and I really want to give this space and this platform to uh, all of our, or as, as many
2: other people as we can, uh, try to uplift and then to encourage other people and so, dear Asian Americans, thank you. It's uh, yeah. I, I, that's all I can say. Whether, whether it's your first time listening, because you
0: thought, "What the hell does a host have to say?" Or whether you've listened to all hundred episodes, um, thank you. Um, thank you for allowing me to. Have this. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing your stories to all of our guests. Holy moly, um, the the hours that you've put in, the, the the stories that you've dug into, and then to all the people who've been uh, supporting along the way. Like, thank you. Just never stop telling your stories. Support the storytellers in your lives. Encourage them. Tell them they matter. Make introductions, give them spaces to tell their stories. If somebody's got a project, buy tickets, buy their books, put money in their pockets. Storytelling comes in a lot of different ways. I've chosen this method, but it comes in a lot of different ways. And uh, I hope that we never, ever stop telling our stories because I want to grow this pie so damn big. We may be 6% of the American pie, but we are 60% of the global pie. And so Uh never forget where you come from. Never forget where you want to go and uh, do something that will make your great grandkids proud
2: today. It's been such an honor. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Jerry. As I said on the show, thank you so much for listening to this episode, listening
0: to all of our episodes or just listening to any of our episodes i um, truly, truly, truly grateful that I've had the experience to uh, share so many of our stories that unifies our identity and unifies our experiences, yet are so uh, different and unique in the way that we identify as Asian Americans. So, as I mentioned on the show, uh, we're switching up the format a little bit. We're inviting 12 of my dear friends to share in this storytelling experience. Starting next week, you're going to hear from Tiffany Huang as she invites three of her badass Asian-American sisters to share their stories. Um, And and we'll continue to share different yet beautiful, amazing Asian-American stories with you. If you've listened this far, uh, I have a very specific ask. I would love for you to support me and our team in continuing to create not just the Asian-Americans, but all of our shows at Just Like Media. And and you can do that to one of two ways. Uh, You can support my Buy Me A Coffee or you could support us by uh, purchasing merch from our bonfire store. And so uh, head over to the links in the show notes or head over to our Instagram at The Asian Americans and you'll find those links. Um, It's a humble ask. And so I hope that you uh, join us in making sure that we can continue to produce these shows at the quality that we have been so far, and uh, just really asking you to become a partner in, in creating these stories. So, thank you so much, 100. Um, hard to believe we got here, but so proud that we've done it. And um, to all those who've encouraged, all those who've uh, been on the show, and to all of our guests who've shared their stories, thank you. Just everlasting gratitude. And most importantly,
2: To my wife, Kyunghwa, and to our two kids, thank you for letting me do this. This is all for you. Signing off
0: on episode 100 of the Asian Americans, this has been your host, Jerry Wan. Thank you.